In summation, next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. Precious, worthy, costly, excellent, precious, uh, noble. These are all the words that uh, Martin Luther uses to describe the gift of music that God has given us. I bring this to my class uh, when, when I teach, and I often ask them, is this how you feel about music? You guys are music majors. How do you feel? Do you feel like this? Uh, if you do, you ought to practice more, probably, or whatever. I mean, if, if this is true, how ought we to act, right? Um, John Calvin says, music is either the first or one of the principal gifts of God to recreate man, recreate the idea of renewing us from within, and to give him pleasure. Wherefore, we must be the more diligent in ruling it in such a manner that it may be useful to us and in no way pernicious uh, or harmful. And then finally, the conclusion of this. Since music is of such obvious importance and interest to God, and how do we know that? Well, you're holding... uh, Uh, 500 or so references to the direct act of music in your hand, and there are many, many other uh, examples of music in the scriptures. Um, Virtually no other subject that has this many references. Since music is uh, of such obvious importance and interest to God, one of my colleagues wrote, man does well to develop a proper appreciation or a proper understanding of music to recognize the musical gifts of others and to exercise to God's glory whatever musical gifts he himself may possess. Um, Music's not rocket science. We can always learn more about it. It's not that hard to learn to read music if you'd like to. Uh, Again, it's not rocket science or I wouldn't be teaching it. Um, Yeah, and it's our duty to exercise our gifts However, whatever he's given us to exercise them to his glory. So I'm going to take the uh, um, directory of worship from our book of church order, just that little section on um, music, and I'm going to read through paragraph by paragraph and and make comment. And if you, as thoughts occur to you or questions occur, would you just uh, raise your hand and... uh, let me know, and I'll address them. I have a couple questions specifically that were given to me the last time I was here that I will address a little bit later on. But our directory of worship says, worshiping God through music is a duty and privilege. The singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as well as the use of suitable musical instruments, should have an important part in public worship. Worshiping God through music is a duty just look in your list of, of, of verses there. Look maybe at Psalm or in your scriptures, Psalm 911. It's a duty. Sing praises to the Lord. Declare among the people his doings. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Psalm 47, 
verses 6 and 7. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises unto our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. And as you glance down through the list of verses, you'll see over and over again, it's a duty. God commands us to do this. Um, but it's also a privilege. I, I love the words to that hymn, Come Christians, join to sing. Loud praise to Christ our King. Let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. It's God's gracious choice to allow us to praise him. The hymn writer reminds us, and of course that is true. It's a duty, but it's also a privilege. So worshiping God through music is a duty and a privilege. The singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and I'll talk more about that a little bit later. What does that mean? As well as the use of suitable musical instruments should have an important part in public worship. So what is a suitable musical instrument here? Uh, I have to tell you that the early church found no instruments suitable. And in fact, there are still some traditions today that use no instruments in their worship. The Anabaptists, I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and many of the Mennonites and Amish do not use, would not use instruments in their worship. Um, and there are some Reformed churches as well who use no instruments and a few others. I think there's a Church of God tradition as well and uh, others. Um, the early church... Generally, the church fathers wrote against the use of musical instruments. And there was, it was twofold. Their arguments were twofold, and I, I alluded to this last week or last time I spoke. But one of them had to do, their reasoning was, that was the old covenant. This is the new. We, they needed instruments to help their worship. We don't need that anymore. We have the Holy Spirit. Christ has come. All things are made new. We don't need those instruments anymore. Uh, I think that was a reasoning more to get at this. One of the things that bothered them the most is that instruments were used in nearly every form of pagan worship. And so they write strongly against pagan worship, and they didn't want instruments um, coming into the New Testament worship, the, uh, the pure worship in their eyes, because of the identification with pagan worship. And so... There are no musical instruments, as, or at least that's what they're writing about. You know, be honest, we don't really know what their practice was, but we know what they, what they wrote about. Um, so for us, what are, what are suitable instruments? Um, and a lot of it has to do with how, how it will help us to sing together. Really, the emphasis on script, in Scripture is on people singing together. And so... You choose instruments that are going to help you sing together. So when we have an organ, that one of the things that an organ is great for is it has the sustain that allows us to sing with confidence. One of the things that keeps people from singing is hearing their own voice, right? And, and they don't want others to hear them, maybe. Um, but when you have this big sound that you can just become a part of, it, it gives confidence in singing. Um, one of the other strengths uh, of an organ is the idea of when. So we, we have to, you know, what gives us, helps us to sing is to know when to sing. That's part of my job up there. 
but an organist can do that really, really without me. Dr. Dunbar does not need me. He, uh, he tolerates me, but he does not need me uh, to, lead, to lead the music. Uh, they, they teach organists to do that. Um, now, at least in our post-Reformation worship, uh, especially in the, in the 18th century in England, as there were more nonconformist churches, the Methodists and others that, that, that came into being, they, they, had to, they, they came out of the established churches, the churches that had the organs. And so what are we going to do now? Well, one of the things they started using was the piano. Uh, piano was invented, I don't know, 1650, 1670, 1680, something like that. Um, but it doesn't really become common until the early 1700s. Um, so organs are expensive. We have this little church. How are we going to sing together? Well, a lot of homes had pianos because uh, middle-class families were aspiring to be upper-class, and you know, you know, music lessons traditionally were only for the very, very wealthy. Um, and so we wanted to be like them, and so we teach our kids music, and there were pianos in homes, and so and they found, their, found themselves into the, uh, into the worship service. Now, a piano doesn't have the sustain that an organ has, but it has a percussive effect that allows us to hear, allows us to sing together. And the thing that really helps with both the organ and the piano is it helps us to sing in harmony. Um, it, it helps us, uh, you know, the way composers, the way good even good hymn writers harmonize their hymns, it has a lot to do with voice leading, one, one note in a voice leading to the next one. So if you look at what Mrs. Pinkston writes, you'll notice that her parts, you can sing a tenor line and still have lots of uh, interesting music to sing. Um, so there's, this is how composers composed really uh, well, they still do. I mean, when I'm talking about classical composers, so this idea of voice leading. Well, because of the key, the way a keyboard instrument is, it allows for that sort of voice leading. Um, so this is one of the things that a guitar does not do because a guitar is is chord. So it's harder to sing harmonies. Now, with a guitar, it's easy to sing two parts. It's way harder to sing three or four parts. It, it's harder to sing a bass line. So. In a smaller setting, you know, uh, in, 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 uh, where you have fewer people, you know, a guitar can be very, very helpful. In a large setting, not so much, and especially if you want to sing harmony. Um, so what's suitable? Well, things that help us uh, to sing together. And as I mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll repeat myself just a little bit, but uncertainty is the biggest thing that hinders corporate singing. If you don't know the hymn, that keeps you from singing. If, if, it, if the words and music don't go, don't go very well together, that keeps us from singing. And, and you've all experienced it, right? We, every once in a while we'll come, come along a hymn that is, it maybe doesn't sing as easily as others, and, and we don't sing as well when that happens. Um, knowing when to sing knowing that others are going to sing with you. There's a certain familiarity, know that, knowing that people are going to sing. One of the joys of leading music in here is to, to hear you sing. And when you sing out, then your neighbor's encouraged to sing out. Um, 
And that's one of the reasons why it's also helpful to have an organ and piano and, and all these instruments that are helping us. So we have all these beautiful sounds that are sort of supporting our voices, and they encourage us. They encourage us to sing more. So the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as well as the use of suitable musical instruments, should have an important part in public worship. The next paragraph says, um, the focus of music, this is in the uh, directory of, of worship, the focus of music must be consonant with every other aspect of biblical and spiritual worship. We're going to come back to that idea of spiritual worship in a little bit. But this is interesting. I think one of the things that's interesting about our directory is that we really do want to come to music with the same attention that we come to the reading of God's word or with the same attention that we would use for the listening, uh, to, listening to the sermon. Um, it's, it's the, it should be the same, same thought process. I think you know, different things may happen, um, but... It should be consonant with every other aspect of biblical and spiritual worship. The focus must be God, his person, his perfections, and his works. So I just want you to uh, look at a few verses about this. The focus must be God. I want us to first of all look at, a, uh, like, look at Job 35.10 there in your, in your list or in your scriptures. Because here's the beautiful thing. Um, God gives us songs. It's one of the things that, the, that several verses remind us. So God wants us to sing. He commands us to sing. Um, but he also gives us the songs. I was blessed by this this morning. Job's, Job 35.10. But none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? He, he, he gives these to us. Psalm 32, 7. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. God surrounds us with songs of deliverance. This is part, some of the Psalter. Um, Psalm 40. He's put a new song in my mouth. Many shall see it in fear. Yeah, so God gives the songs, and then you'll notice as you keep reading through uh, the Psalter there that that music is directed to God, right? The focus must be God, our directory of worship says, his person, his perfections, and his works. And um, this is a great way to assess hymnody. What, what is its focus? Is it telling us about God's works or his perfections or his person. Uh, and you can see uh, how often in, in the Psalms this thing. Ha- look at, look at uh, uh, Psalm 1849, for example. Here we have a great example of the direction. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and sing praises unto thy name. The national aspect of music really has to do with us singing to the Lord and the nations listening in. And they, are, uh, they, they are convicted by that song. Um, and um, I think we can think of that um, 
physically as actual song, we can also think of it metaphorically. If God's given us a new song, part of the way that we are as believers proclaims our God to the nations. Um, and so uh, our music, we sing to God. Um, actually, that same thing happens in our worship, right? We sing to God, but all of us around each other are blessed by, by the music. Right? So his focus must be on God, his perfection, his person, his works. Of course, there are lots of examples of, of, of God's works in, in the Psalter. Also, I mean, think of one of the first songs that we read about the song of Moses. You know, God has triumphed. He threw the horse and the rider into the sea. Um, over and over, we can sing joyfully about God's works. And a lot of our hymnody has occurred because uh, somebody has experienced God's work in their life, and then they, they write it down, and they, they write down God's works. It says there should be a wedding, such a wedding of tunes with words that the message is conveyed without distraction. So um, one of the things that distinguished the Jewish worship and, the, and our Christian worship from the pagan worship is that it was word-centered Pagan worship, the music was often used to distract either the people uh, or sometimes it was used to overpower their senses. Um, sometimes it was used to manipulate the gods uh, or sometimes to distract the gods. Sometimes it was used to drown out any other sounds that we could, so that we could focus, they could focus only on the gods. But th- it was the sounds themselves that were there to manipulate the worshipers um, in whatever rituals going on there. Um, Jewish worship has always been about words, uh, the Hebrew worship, and so has Christian worship. Um, and so um, when you read of music in the scriptures, uh, there are almost no references. There are almost no places in scripture where it's not talking about words and music together. We, we tend to think of them separately, um, but in music history, in ancient music, they tended to think of poetry and music as kind of the same thing. When Aristotle writes about music, for example, you know, he's, he, or poetry, he's basically talking about words and music. He just kind of understood it was poetry, it was uh, it was, there was music there. We tend to think of it separately today. That's not how they thought of it at all. Um, and it's, it's not how they thought of it uh, in the early church uh, worship as much either. So what I'm saying is that in Scripture, whenever you see a description of music, it's talking about words and music together. Even David, when he plays before Saul, well, we don't know. Um, it could have been that David was just improvising. I'm sure he was very good at that. I mean, he was playing the harp out in the fields uh, for the sheep or, or whatever, or for himself to pass the time. Perhaps this is when he was learning about his God as he's playing music. He, God gives songs in the night. And gives, you know, you're compassed about with songs of deliverance. Maybe this is what David was experiencing there as, as he's... Uh, 
perfecting his music to the animals there. Um, but when, when David plays for Saul, maybe it could well have been that he was just playing a song that Saul already knew the words to. Maybe he was you know, playing amazing, well, it wasn't playing amazing grace, but you know what I'm saying? It, it could very well have been that even that music, where it's talking, where it speaks just of an instrument playing and, and no words are implied, that there could have been words implied. We don't know. But the vast majority of what you read in scripture are words and music together. And frankly, that's how music has been for most of music history. Um, so I teach and I love classical music, and there's lots of classical music today where there, where there are no words. Um, that's a pretty new thing. Uh, so, um, uh, generally speaking, words and music. So, um, it's just natural that the point of music is to heighten uh, the understanding of a text. Uh, one writer says that the music sympathetically or should sympathetic respond to the words with gestures that are appropriate to them. And then when this happens, it takes the word to a different place. We talked about this last time. Why, why music? Why, why don't we just say the words? The words are a blessing to us, right? Um, but the music responds to the, uh, the musical gestures, respond to the text, and then they take it to a different place. And... Um, this is, as I said, this is just a natural, this is just a natural thing. Sometimes we talk about music being a language. Sometimes you hear that music's a universal language. And most people uh, today, most scholars today reject that uh, notion that it's, it's, it's not exactly a language. It's kind of like its own little expression. But there are lots of similarities uh, in the way that we describe music, the way that I teach music to my music students, has a lot to do with um, how we understand language. We've taken, we've taken a lot of the same terminology, you know, musical phrases, and uh, we talk about periods. We talk, uh, well, there are all sorts of things, but a, a lot of how we describe music, we've taken from language because they're so closely intertwined. And frankly, although it's, for the most part, musicologists today reject the idea that music's a universal language, there can be no doubt that there are a lot of universal principles in language. And I think, um, and that's because we're all human beings. We're all created in the image of God, and we respond to circumstances similarly. Uh, human beings, were, if we were to look into the countenance of a people from virtually any culture, and they were happy, we would understand that they were happy. And if they were sad, we would understand that. And it's very similar uh, in, with the musical gestures. So, um, there is this natural connection between, there has always been this natural connection between the words that we sing and the music uh, to which we sing them. Then it says, there should be a wedding of, okay, I said that. There should be a wedding of tunes and words that the message is conveyed without distraction. Tunes and music that identify with worldly environments have no place in the worship of God. The consciousness of God's holiness should strongly influence the kind of music brought into his presence to praise him and to offer the thanksgiving that he deserves. Um, now, 
this statement as well is a statement that would have found consonants in the earliest church. Uh, the earliest church writers were very worried about uh, the mu musical worship. Okay, if, if music is like uh, Martin Luther says, if it moves us so deeply, uh, the, the early church fathers wrote <laughs> a lot about this. So the idea, uh, you, you know, today there's some controversy about what styles of music should be allowed into worship. Well, it's, this is not new. Um, in fact, it's very, very old. Um, and people have been figuring this out, um, trying to figure this out. I think there is a very simple way to get to, to think about this. There is music, uh, the, your, the, our uh, directory says that identify with worldly environments, and I would go stronger than that. It's not just the identity, but there is a thing that music means. Um, and uh, the way I, I like to describe musical meaning is this, that when you listen to music without text, um, there are a range of things. You know, without music, without text, music is not as specific, uh, for sure. Um, that doesn't mean it does not communicate. In fact, well, the way I like to say it is that there's a range of things that that music could mean, but a fairly narrow range. There are many, many more things that it cannot mean. So if I, and I do this all the time with my students, but I'll play a piece of music and I'll ask them to tell me what it means. And there will be a number of different adjectives that they describe. But if it's relatively happy music, nobody says that it's angry. Um, and um, vice versa. So now, when it comes to worldly, there are things, uh, you know, the, the scripture tells us to love, not the world, where there are worldly emotions, I suppose. There are worldly actions, and there's music that is more likely to portray that than not. Um, of course, there will be areas that are, you know, where it's, it's less certain than others, but it, it's as simple as that. If, if, it's, if, if the music is there and it's more likely to portray this than that, well then, then it doesn't really have a part in our worship. Um, when CCM begins in the, basically begins in the late 60s with uh, usually people credit the Jesus, the, the Jesus freaks, the Jesus people there in the late 60s. Uh, and essentially their idea was very, it was kind of a Christian uh, taking over of the anti-establishment mentality of the hippies. So here are hippies, but they're professing Christ. But the establishment churches, that's not, that's not where it's at. We have to do something different. So what's anti-establishment? Well, there was nothing that was more anti-establishment at that time than the music, uh, than our popular music. And so um, this is where our contemporary Christian music starts. Um, and, and I think even that, even that idea is... Uh, the the anti-establishment idea t is, is important for us to remember when we um, get into this. Now, I, obviously, what was anti-establishment then has become pretty, pretty, uh, pretty establishment today, uh, at least in our popular culture. Um, 
but the meanings haven't really changed. What has changed is what our, what our culture has allowed into it, um, what our culture agrees with, I guess you could say. So tunes and music that identify or that portray worldly environments have no place um, because the consciousness of God's holiness should strongly influence. So the idea of holiness is the idea of setting apart, is it not? Um, I have a friend who's a musicologist, and she um, has done a lot of study of music of, of many different cultures, um, more primitive cultures. Frankly, more primitive cultures, they don't have a distinction between secular and sacred that we have today that are distinct. That's probably a more enlightenment idea where we're separating, okay, that's what we do for church, but this is how we live the rest of our lives. Um, they don't really have that. So all of their music has some sort of uh, religious connotation. I have my, uh, one of my classes study the music of this small tribe of pygmies in, in Africa. And, and everything they do is in worship to the jungle. Their god is the jungle. Um, and uh, so every part of it is, you know, they don't even grieve when somebody dies for very long because they're worried that the jungle god will think that they're not thankful for what he's given them. Um, so in, in some primitive cultures, there is no, there is no separation. Um, but generally speaking, every culture does separate, uh, set apart um, things for their worship. Their, their religions do this. Um, this is true in Hindu. It's... it's uh, uh, true in Buddhism, there is this, this sort of separateness. And um, so the, the idea that we separate is not really a new idea. It's what, it's what human beings naturally do when we go to worship. Because isn't that what worshiping is? It is a kind of a setting apart. Our emotions, our thoughts, directing our thoughts specifically away from the st other stuff that we're doing and ascribing worth to something. Um... So um, maybe you ask, where do you, where, where do you draw the line, or where do I draw the line? I don't think it really matters so much where I draw the line, but if you want to know, I'm happy to talk with you about it. There, obviously, there are different circumstances. There are different... Uh, what I've talked about right now, I've talked about the music itself, and I've talked to the identity. We all have our own... Things that bother us more than others, that bother our consciences, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't go there. If something bothers my conscience, I don't do it. It might not bother somebody else's conscience, but I don't have to, I'm not going to stand before God and say, you know, Gene Elliott's conscience, let him do that. Um, yeah, that's, that's not how we do it. So I think this is uh, a general way to talk about it. I mean... Let's face it, um, our American popular commercial music is generally worldly. There are exceptions to that, right? You can find exceptions in all these areas, but generally it is. Um, and generally it portrays 
sinfulness. All you have to do is watch an awards program, like you know, the Grammys or whatever, and watch them perform. That's generally what it does. As I say, there are exceptions to that. You can find exceptions. And you're welcome to. I mean, that's, that's why God gives us brains. Um, so uh, let me just talk a little bit. We don't, we don't sing very much here. Um, uh, we don't uh, sing very much modern hymnody, more modern hymnody. But um, especially in the last, I'd say, 10 or 15 years, um, Sovereign Grace and, and the Gettys and there are a few others um, who have come out with a hymnody that is uh, where the, the um, texts are far stronger. So the, typically, the, the, with CCM in general, typically what you know, the, the, the knock was, man, these texts are really, really shallow, and to go along with the music. Well, the Gettys and others have really stepped up the game. The texts are not shallow. Sometimes they're... Sometimes they're quite good. The poetry is decent. It's not Isaac Watts or Bob Jones Jr. or anything like that. Um, so, but we, actually, I don't think we've discussed this, Armit, but I'll give you my opinion. Um, we, it is, they are, these, and I should say this, that these people are Christian brothers. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not attacking their personal character. But Keith Getty was classically trained, and he writes, he had to, he, when he talked about his hymnody, what he was trying to accomplish, he said, I had to learn to write in a pop style. Um, and so uh, I think typically, for me, the music uh, doesn't quite elevate to the texts. Um, I think that, to me, the, the, the Getty music and, and the... Um, Sovereign grace to some extent. And again, there are exceptions. I think there are some that are pretty strong, actually. But to me, the music sounds pretty sentimental. Uh, it's, it sounds more like a ballad than... Uh, and so, you know, it's, when we're, we're talking about God's love, God's love is really not like a ballad. It's not like your, it's not like your first crush or even... You know, it, it's very different than that. It's the sovereign choice, right? It's, we were very ugly. And we were basically, uh, what were we? We were miscarriages in the desert, Ezekiel says. And God loved us. And so I, I feel like the, that, that music doesn't, of course, in some, in some ways, there's no music that can do that. But to me, the music, their, their music, it, it, it tends more to the sentimental and less to the sturdy. Um, and so uh, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan. And there are others. We, we sing some Chris Anderson songs, and I think um, some of his are, are actually pretty sturdy. Some basically, to me, sound the same as, as uh, some of the other modern hymnody. Now, I should say that in every age, there are going to be lots of things written and then we're going to pick out the best, aren't we? Um, I have a hymnal at home that is uh, from the Moody Crusades. It's a Sankey hymnal. It's like that thick, and it's got like 800 pieces in them. And there are, we probably sing about 50 of them now, today. Most of them we wouldn't want to sing. <laughs> they're, they're bad. Um, and so bad, 
quality. So, you know, I, I think, you know, we're going to look back and we're going to find some things from a modern hymnody that are useful that we can, uh, um, can portray. Or that we can, what's the word? I'm not, portray is not the word. That we can use. That's really what our hymnal is. Our hymnal, we, we, um, we pick out, you know, we, we assemble these hymns, we pick out all the best ones from the past, and we add some other ones. Um, and then the next hymnal, we do the same thing. We throw out a bunch. And so from year to year, you can actually track certain hymns to see when they, how often they are used. And certain hymns were used a lot in 1900 and then very little today. Sometimes that doesn't speak well for today. Sometimes it just means that the hymn wasn't very good in the first place uh, or wasn't at, didn't rise quite to the level. Singing the praises of God should be the expression of an inward spiritual experience, the expression of a heart affected by truth, our directory of worship says. I got this question several weeks ago. Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. How do we practically do that in our personal devotions in a church? So in that passage there in John, I think Christ is contrasting the Samaritan worship and the Jewish worship, which was heavily ritualized. There were a lot of things that you did. And he's saying that that's not enough. That, in fact, it's meaningless unless you're also worshiping sincerely in your heart. Um, now, how do we do that in our devotions? I, I, I think that there, it can be a kind of a reciprocal, reciprocal relationship. And even here in church, I think sometimes we come and our hearts are heavy or they're distracted or something, and we sing, and we're focused, and it brings the Holy Spirit works. I should say there that that, that, that idea of spirit there, it's not, that's not a capital S in that, in that verse, I don't think. Uh, I think it has to do with our inner, our innermost being. It's be the idea of singing from the heart and uh, with understanding. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 tells us. So when we worship in spirit, that's with our heart and in truth, with, with, with the truth of God's word around us. Um, so as I say, it's a reciprocal thing. Sometimes we come and our hearts are not there and they get there because of the practice of singing. Other times, our song is the expression of our heart. Our hearts are overflowing, so we have to sing. Um, so uh, the way I look at it is that our, the ritual that we have, our re- the reading of our Bible, the praying, the singing, these things that God, the means of grace that God has given us, um, it's... It's important that we do them, no matter what, whether we feel like it or not. If we waited for sincerity, if we waited for joy, I mean, we might not ever read our Bible, or we might not, because there's always going to be stuff. So the ritual is really important, I think. Our practice of the means of grace is really important, but it's not enough. If we never have the Holy Spirit, if we never are worshiping with our heart, well, then that's, that's a real problem. Then we have become just like the Pharisees. And, and, and Christ talked very uh, strongly about that sort of thing. Remember what he told the Pharisees about tithing the mint and cumin and things? He said, you should not have left that 
undone. You should have taken, taken care to get every step right. It's okay to be careful about all those things, but he's saying you missed the most important thing. Uh, I just read about Mary and Martha. I mean, Martha missed the most important thing. What she was doing was important. It was important for her to uh, prepare the meal. It was important for her to work, but she missed the most important thing. And I think that's, that's the key. Um, I do think, however, that the Holy Spirit, when we're exercising, they wouldn't be called the means of grace. If the Holy Spirit doesn't give us grace um, as we do them and, and doesn't open our hearts. Um, so singing the praises of God should be the expression of the inward spiritual experience, the expression of a heart affected by truth. The uh, 1 Corinthians 14, again, says, I will sing in the Spirit, and I'll sing with understanding. And once again, it's that very same, very same idea. The expression of a heart affected, the affections, that has to do, the expression of a heart affected by truth, that has to do with our emotions, and I think it's important for us, I think the thing that is so natural about music is, and, and honestly, in some ways, the way that it communicates most naturally is to our emotions. Um, and so uh, these, the, the, I think this is one of the reasons God gives us music, is it gives a great way for us to express back to him our emotions, and, and as you read the Psalter, there, there is, a, is a lot of that emotion, both um, sad and happy and joyful, and there's some anger there sometimes. Uh, all of these ways, and this is one of the reasons God gives us music. The last paragraph says, uh, singing the Psalms should be the regular element of music service since psalms are divinely inspired songs of prayer, praise, proclamation of truth. Singing psalms is proper because God revealed, the God revealed in the Old Testament is still our God. But thoroughly Christian worship must include the details of truth that have been more thoroughly expounded after the incarnation in the New Testament. Although not inspired, all hymns should be true to the word of God. Um, we don't know exactly what they sang in the early church, um, but they seem to have sung some hymns. Um, I was telling Tim beforehand that the practice of singing psalms only appears to have come in reaction against the, uh, uh, some of the uh, Gnostic hymnody that was going on. Some of the heresies had developed their own hymnody, and, and so the reaction against that was, well, we're only going to sing psalms. It was an easy way to cut it off. Well, we often make, we often do this, right? We set lines that are easy to see. Um, so we're going to do this. We know the Psalms are inspired. Let's sing those. And that especially comes into practice with monasticism. You know, the monks are, are there. This is the 400s or so. They're there all day long. What are, how are we going to keep them going? How are we going to keep their minds on, on the Lord? Well, we're going to sing through the Psalter each week. Um, so, um, but... Um, from the, from the earliest hymns we have go back to, to 200 or so A.D., and they are 
usually, they're, they're Christianizing. What, do, what does the new church have to sing about? Well, Christ's work, Christ's deity, Christ's resurrection. And this is where um, these hymns come from. And, and, uh, and they have, although there was sort of a lull with the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther especially inspired the writing of a bunch of, of new hymns. Um, and even even some of our hymnody is are sort of Christianized psalms. You think of "Joy to the World," for example, um, is a you know, Psalm ninety eight, but it sort of Christianizes it. Uh, same same thing with with others. Um, before I, it's ten nineteen, but let me just take a take a question or two. I have not taken questions. I've been talking quickly because I didn't want to sound stupid on the sermon audio. <laughs> Yes, sir. I think my preferences are right. <laughs> Mike, Mike Barrett always used to say, I, I never hold a position, you know, in error on purpose. <laughs> um, now, so I think the general principles are really simple. All right, so exactly what you choose to do, um, honestly, I, I, choose, like, I choose differently now than I did 10 years ago. Um, so, to me, the most important thing is somebody who has these general principles. If, they, if, if someone is making the choice not to be worldly with their Christian music, but they have made a, a, you know, they made a choice differently than, than I do, I mean, I don't necessarily like it, but at least they're making that choice in their mind. So... I mean, that's where I try to put the emphasis. I mean, I give my opinion. Uh, you know, I like. I think a simple way for for most of modern hymnody. I, I don't. I think it. I think that the music itself is is sentimental. It, it actually doesn't necessarily reflect the text that it's singing as well as it might. Um, and I, one of the other things, and there, there are exceptions to this, but there is a, one of the things I think that we sometimes lack in our, our, our modern consciousness, and we're very much focused on uh, our, ourselves. It's sort of a psychology. And so um, that's, I think, where the sentimentality comes from. It's, um, and so sometimes it lacks this sturdiness. Um, I like to say, you know, I, I like a hymn that starts on a downbeat every once in a while, <laughs> or just or just one pickup. Uh, you know, a mighty fortress has a has a pickup, but it's it's very sturdy, and so you get you get this idea: yes, God's gonna win. It's not like oh, I've got so many struggles. Um, I, this is what I tire of. I get I tire of uh, struggles and struggles and struggles but God will help me. This is all true. But it, it is true. 
but I just really like to sing a mighty fortress of their God, you know, or, or something like that. Oh, God, our help in ages past. There's, there's going to be victory, right? I've got these struggles, but it's not my struggle. It's the most important thing. It's, it's God's triumph. So anyway, uh, that was a very long-winded answer to a very simple question. Um, but I do. I, I, I feel like if you're making the choice, if you're making the world, you know, I'm trying to separate from worldliness. That's a Christian choice. If, you're, if your choice doesn't quite agree with my choice, I can lose that. You know, um, you know I might not. You know, I might not enjoy going to your church as much as I would somebody else's, but I'm not, you know, you're a Christian brother and you're making a choice that, that is uh, spirit-filled. It is 10.23. There's no choir today, but I should let you go get your snacks or those. Well, let's, let's pray, and I'm happy to, I, th- I think about this stuff all the time, frankly. I stare off into the space, and Debbie says to me, what are you thinking about? And it's usually something that I have to teach. So, so I'm happy to talk with you uh, as with other questions. Lord, please uh, bless these words uh, again. Lord, I pray that you would take away the frivolous, take away uh, the unhelpful, and that you would uh, stir in us this uh, joy to sing together, to, as, as that statement says, to exercise our musical gifts however you've given them to us, to the glory of God. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.